Okay, let's just pray before we start. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for the worship this morning. We thank you that your presence is here um, and that your spirit is with us. And Lord, we thank you for your words, that it speaks life to us. And uh, we pray that uh, we would all uh, go away, change people today. And Lord, uh, we just want to say to your Holy Spirit, um, come and do whatever you will. Um, and if that means finishing the sermon, great. If not, then that's great too. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Okay, well, welcome everybody. Um, it is fantastic to be able to share with you today. Uh, we'll be hearing some stories from Beth. This is a double act, um, baby willing. And uh, hopefully there'll be some chances for you guys to do some self-reflection and some participation as well. Um, great, and so would it be possible to have a couple of volunteers to, uh, to hand these round? That would be wonderful. Oh, yeah, and pens too. That's brilliant. Um, and also, if you don't have a Bible with you or some electronic device with a Bible on it, uh, perhaps you might like to grab one from the pillars at the back. I think that's where they are. So, um, so that you're ready, because I'm not sure it's going to be on the screen. There's a new system, apparently. So, Okay. The Bible is amazing, isn't it? I mean, I have to say today that I just don't read it enough. In the last few weeks, I definitely haven't been. Um, one of the most amazing things about it is that in just one story, stories throughout the Bible, but in each story it can tackle a huge theme that spans millennia, something like salvation. Um, at the same time, it can tackle very topical moral and spiritual decisions that we have to make. Um, and it's about real stories of real people who are really just like us. And Ruth is definitely no exception. Ruth is the sort of Jane Austen or George Eliot saga of the Bible, but with salvation, refugees, desperate mourning, tragedy, but also examples of upright godly men and women who are making a fantastic difference um, in the place that God's put them, and that's all thrown into this amazing story. Uh, I also love it because it's got tons of farming in it. Now, for those of you who don't know, I studied agriculture, and I've had the privilege of working on a number of farms. And for me, any story that's based around the barley fields and the threshing floor is something that's well worth reading. However, recently I've got rather short shrift um, because most of my references for pregnancy, uh, labour, caring for young is with reference to experience with sheep. Um, and that doesn't go down quite so well when you're dealing with your own wife and baby. Um, so <laughs> that's something to learn there. Um, who watches, who still watches serial dramas on the telly? You know, kind of Sunday night, uh, serial dramas. I'm not talking about iPlayer. Put your hands up if you do. Excellent. Great. Well, I used to, and I'd start a series, you know, uh, guns blazing. And I'd be like, yes, I'm going to try and watch all of this. So I might watch the first episode, just about catch the second episode. Then I'll miss the third, and then and maybe catch the fourth, then miss the fifth. And I'd be so confused a couple of weeks in that I'd basically just totally give up. Um, and Ruth is a little bit like that. Today, it's about setting the scene. And it is going to end on a bit of a cliffhanger. Um, so I would encourage you to come back next week or catch the next talk um, in order that you can carry on the story. Uh, so let's dive in. Uh, what we're going to do today is an adaptive version of what's called the Discovery Bible Study. 
Okay, and this is a great tool that's being used um, across the world, but particularly effectively in North Africa and uh, the Middle East. Um, and it's, it's brilliant because it helps uh, look in depth at the word, but then also to give very practical application uh, to our lives um, in the week ahead. So uh, the, the other great thing about it is it's not just good for people who have made a decision whether or not to follow Jesus, but those who are still seeking. And they actually get to see that what Jesus says really works and get, they get to be um, the presence of Jesus, to do his works and to speak his words before they've even really quite decided whether um, it's for them. So, so it's a great tool. We're not going to cover all the questions, but they are all on your sheet. So if you look at it and you think that it might work um, in your life group or you think it might work uh, in, I don't know, a group that you meet with a work or something, then, um, then all the questions are there. But come and talk to uh, Paul or Katie Phillips or Beth and I later, and uh, we can give you some more pointers about it. Um, brilliant. So uh, now what we're going to do is, is hear it. Um, David Kittel is going to come and read the uh, chapter for us. But listen very, very carefully. Normally in the Discovery Bible study, you'd read it twice. Okay, but we're only going to read it once for the sake of time. So listen very, very carefully because um, you'll need to, uh, yeah, know what it says. So David, oh, there you are, brilliant. Thank you. going to read. Is it okay? Everybody here? Good. We're going to read the first chapter of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malion and Kilion. They were Ephrodites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpath and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malion and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, By providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you 
as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpath kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived at Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman explained, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law. Arriving in Bethlehem, as the barley harvest was beginning, Thank you very much, David. Um, so now, what I'd like you to do is to get into pairs, um, and but preferably with the person sitting next to you or near you, and one of you will tell the story to the other without looking 
at your Bible, okay? And the other uh, person in the pair is going to listen very carefully and at the end just add anything that perhaps they missed or correct them if they've added anything um, to the story that, uh, yeah, is not important, okay? So uh, you've just got a couple of minutes to do that, very quick. Uh, Turn to the person next to you and retell the story. So this is a map of the region. Uh, It might be a little bit difficult to see, but here you've got the uh, Dead Sea. And here you've got Bethlehem. And so they would have uh, walked round here into Moab, which was this area here. So you've just got a little picture in your mind of where it was. Going to have a look at the first question that uh, you would use in this Bible study format. What does it teach us about people or humanity? And you've got a little space on your sheet if anything uh, I say feels worth writing down or if anything else occurs to you as we go through. Um, Normally... In this process, you'd share as a group rather than listening to someone at the front. Um, So, for us, when we were looking at this, uh, this chapter and a lot of the book is really about our identity. Um, Think for a moment about your occupation. Maybe you're a soldier, businessman, nurse, farmer, unemployed. You might be retired, homemaker. Do you think that this describes who you are or what you do? Now think about the position that you hold in your family. Father, mother, sister, brother, cousin, mother-in-law. Do you think that this is a job description or an identity or something else entirely? If the culture where uh, uh, Ruth and Orpah and Naomi were living was anything like the culture that we live in, uh, their identity as daughter-in-laws would have defined everything about their lives. And we're just going to hear a story from Beth about how that's the case. With a family um, in the capital of the Central Asian country that we live in. And Kibrio, the daughter of the family, became my younger sister. She was only 18, but still from time to time, her parents would discuss when they would find her a husband. Kibrio confided in me that she didn't want to marry yet. She had finished school, and when her mum and dad went out to work each morning and her brother off to university, she stayed at home to clean the house and the garden and prepare the meals. She couldn't leave the house unaccompanied, so when her jobs were done, she'd hunker down and watch melodramatic Turkish soaps. (laughs) This life, she knew, was easy compared to if she were married. Her older sister is married, and so she knew what it might entail. First, she would lose her identity as Kibrio and take the generic name Kelin, meaning daughter-in-law. Being Kelin would mean that she would move into her husband's parents' house and her purpose would be to serve, serve and serve. She would be servant to the parents-in-law, her husband, his siblings and the numerous guests who would come to visit. She would need to be first up and last to bed, having little time to rest in between. And although her parents would try to find her a family who would treat her well and so possibly marry her to a cousin, it would be likely that her mother-in-law would verbally, if not physically, abuse her, for of course she was now her possession. There would be an expectation for her to bear a child, preferably a son, in the first year of marriage. And if she failed to do this, it could all be over. The marriage, that is, and so much more, as she would be seen as having nothing left to offer, only bringing shame upon her family. 
If she did bear a child, she would say would have little say over how to bring him up. She would have to obey her mother-in-law, even if she disagreed, and would have little time to care for the child, as she would be so busy keeping the house and keeping the house and running around meeting everyone's needs, except her own and her child's. It was no wonder Kibrio didn't want to marry yet. So you can see from this story that uh, being a daughter-in-law effectively means that you become a servant to your husband's family. Uh, and that will last for the life of your parents-in-law or until you get a daughter-in-law yourself or until your husband dies. And that's exactly what happened to Ruth and Orpah. And so they were released from that uh, arrangement um, to go back to their uh, biological families to try and start again if they could. But Ruth takes her responsibility to her mother-in-law beyond what the cultural requirements were and agrees to stay. Not only that, but she turns her back on her own culture and her own gods and accepts Naomi's. By following Naomi, she knew that she could easily be turning her back on, on the chances of remarrying as well. And as we see from Naomi's speech and from uh, Beth's story, children in these sort of cultures are everything. Could it have been that the godly example Naomi and her family had set, even in the face of trial, had had such an impact on Ruth that she was able to turn her back on all that she had known? Maybe we've got people in our families who don't know Jesus and, and actually our example is, is going to be really powerful to them. What about Naomi? A name that meant pleasantness gets turned to a name implying pain. Naomi changes her identity in line with her circumstances in a way that Ruth doesn't, and she lets the pain she suffered define her. But there's another identity for these ladies too. Naomi had left her home as an economic migrant. You might even go a bit further and say a refugee. There was a famine on. Ruth is now returning with her mother as an immigrant. She would have been considered an outsider. Now at that stage, uh, people from Judah were allowed to marry Moabites, but the Moabites wouldn't have been fully accepted into the Jewish assembly. So she would still be considered an outsider. And certainly their arrival in Bethlehem didn't go unnoticed. Now we're going to hear another story from Beth about welcoming strangers. Guests are a gift from God, or so they are in the country that we live. And we have uh, have experienced an amazing welcome on numerous occasions, but one incident, more extreme and less usual, sticks in the mind. One glorious, blue-skied, sunny day, we had been hiking in the mountains with friends from the UK. Our neighbour had given us a lift in his mini minibus several hours earlier, and since we were approaching the village where we'd started, we made the call for him to come and collect us. Tired and hungry from our exertion, we sat on a makeshift wooden bench in the shade by the road, waiting for our lift. Elise, particularly hungry, was scrabbling around in her bag, hopeful to find some uneaten snacks. But a man waiting on the other side of the road for his bus clocked the huddle of rucksack-wearing foreigners and yelled across, Peace be upon you. We reciprocated, our friends too, with their slightly dodgy pronunciation. He continued, How are you? Oh, you speak Pamiri. What are you doing here? Where are you from? Would you like to drink some tea? Given that he was waiting for a bus, um, it didn't seem the most convenient time to accept, and it wasn't for us either. So with appreciation, we said no, 
several times. Relieved that we had successfully declined the invitation, knowing our neighbour would be with us soon, we continued chatting. What we didn't notice was that, that the man had disappeared, leaving his bag with his travel companion. Minutes later, to our surprise and our hungry friend's delight, the man came out with cups of juice, followed by a woman, presumably his wife, with a huge plate of osh. At the same moment, our neighbour arrived. But nothing was going to stop Elise from enjoying the food, so she piled up the rice as high as she could on her bread and tucked in. And what could have been a slightly awkward moment turned into an impromptu feast on the side of the road. So, uh, to people in Asia, guests are considered a gift from God. Strangers are to be welcomed and cared for. And our experience of being strangers in Asia and the hospitality we've received has been very humbling and very challenging. And, you know, this week, we see around us a nation of very confused, some very angry and quite scared nation of Brits. I hear in the news this week of pamphlets being put through uh, the households of Polish people in Cambridgeshire, instructing them to get ready to leave and pack their bags. We believe very strongly that a personal political view on the levels of immigration, whether you think it's too much or too little, uh, should have absolutely no influence on how we respond to the stranger living amongst us. We cannot and we must not let Brexit and everything else that goes with it, overall what Jesus has called us to do as ministers to the stranger and aliens in our midst. And just as a quick aside, I don't know if anyone saw Coldplay at Glastonbury or listened to them, um, but it was really cool to see the way they interwove quite a godly uh, message of tolerance and love um, between their songs. It was an awesome set too, and at one stage you got must have been over 100,000 people singing Amazing Grace. So if if you didn't catch it on iPlayer... Um, yeah, but, but the term for long-term migrants is diaspora. And at this stage, perhaps more than any other in our history, these groups of people, the diaspora is larger than ever. And it's an awesome opportunity to show the love of God to uh, people who have actually come to us. We don't really need to go out anymore. And there are great stories of countries that are completely close to Christians, um, but have people living here, of the Holy Spirit and Christians moving uh, amongst them, getting to know them, and then coming to know Jesus. And that has a massive knock-on effect at home. In Winchester, we've got, um, we've got big diasporic communities. You've got very, very friendly groups, um, like the Filipinos, and other groups that you might feel uh, aren't... Uh, or like, might scare you a little bit hearing about them just because of the politics of their countries. But they're incredibly friendly, comp- incredibly welcoming, and uh, incredibly hospitable. So if you know any, get to know them more. Uh, you will benefit hugely. And when we step out to serve these people and help them, we're doing the same for Jesus. So now let's have a think about Naomi. Naomi had left her own people to try and avoid famine at home, to try and make it in another country, uh, but was coming home empty-handed. And this continues to happen all around the world. So Beth's going to tell another story about that. Gulia told me the story of her brother. Leaving his close village community, his parents whom he lived with, his wife and his two small children, he took a loan to buy a ticket to fly to Moscow. With his rural life far behind, he touched down in the massive and dark city. Thankfully, 
He had the number of a neighbor who had migrated a year or so before, so he rang him to come and meet him. Together they took a tram to the cheap end of town where the Pamiri migrants gathered, safety in numbers, of course. His friends said he could stay with him, but that he would need to find somewhere more permanent as there were already 15 Pamiris living in the three-bedroomed house. His friend introduced him to a roommate who was just leaving for her cleaning job. Of course, you already know Sophia. Her face was certainly familiar, but it took him a moment to place her as coming from his village, as her former long, dark hair was now short and blonde, a necessary attempt at camouflage to make her more Russian-like and reduce hassle from the police. She looked tired and stressed. She said she couldn't stop, as if she were late, she'd lose her job, and she was already behind on her rent. Hurrying out the door, she had a 12-hour, poorly paid shift ahead of her. He did find work and a place to stay, but the work was always temporary. Sometimes he worked on building sites, sometimes as a cleaner. Whatever would give him money, he would do. But there were long lengths of time where he had no work at all, but he still had to pay for his share of the room. And then, of course, there was the loan he had taken out for his ticket. He wondered how he would ever earn money to buy his return ticket. He'd come as he needed to earn money to support his family, but at times he could barely support himself as if he didn't already feel rubbish. The way his employees treated him confirmed him that he was. How could he go home with nothing to show for this time? How would he even get home? He missed the mountains and all that was familiar. He felt alone and trapped. Thanks. So this is where um, the Greenhouse Project steps in, where we live. Uh, it provides hope for people coming back uh, from Russia, but also uh, for people who are thinking about going to Russia, an opportunity to uh, bring in a bit of money to provide better nutrition for their families, um, and also uh, to encourage the local system of bartering and give them some more economic power in the village. And that is, that is working. We have a number of... Uh, of our partners who have come back from Russia um, and have been able to stay because they've got this option with the greenhouse. And uh, this will be improved by uh, building the greenhouses with schools as more of the community will have a chance to see the difference that this technology could make. So if you want to support this project, then please come along next Sunday um, after the service and there'll be, as Nigel said, the auction of promises. And this will be directly helping people in this situation. But let's very, very quickly move on to, um, sorry, yeah, that's a greenhouse. Um, the, the next question. Now, it's always frustrating me reading John's gospel because he gives away the ending right at the beginning. Jesus is gathering his disciples together and he tells us um, who's going to betray Jesus and that he's going to betray him. But Ruth isn't a bit like that. As I said, we're going to leave it on a cliffhanger. And actually, we don't know how God's going to intervene and what he's going to do. Trust me, he does. But pinpointing it in this format is a little bit difficult. But I, I think we can see a contrast between the two ladies that gives us a clue to the heart of God. First in identity, Ruth, the new believer, is throwing in her lot with Naomi and her God, giving up everything. Naomi, having known God for years, has changed her identity, believing that God has turned his back on her. And how often can we do that? How often can we believe lies about ourselves and, and rather than being the child of God, we become the one with a sin we just can't get rid of or the one who's in pain because of something that's happened in our lives? Secondly, the writer is beginning to build a feeling of godly compassion in us, the reader, towards the plight of these two women thrown into these situations. I think God wants to raise the same compassion in our hearts towards those foreigners around us and those who have accepted an identity that's not what he would have. 
So that leads us to the final question, which sort of comes in two parts. If we believe this is God's word to us, what will our response be this week? And who will we share this story with? Now, we're not legalistic around here, are we? So obviously, we're not going to do anything we don't see the Father doing. But it might be that during the service, God has placed someone on your heart to reach out to, or a situation to speak into, or um, someone to pray for. And it might be that someone comes to mind specifically to share this story with. So we're just going to take a few minutes before I invite Nigel to come back up and lead us in the ministry time. Just to have a think about that, just to talk to God, to write it down on your sheet if you've got a pen. And if anyone wants to have prayer, particularly uh, for the things that have come to mind, then um, there'll be the ministry time in a minute. So just take a couple of minutes, just, just listen to the Holy Spirit and write down anyone that comes to mind to share this with or um, any way that God wants you to respond personally or in your community.